Well, first of all, allow me a few personal comments before we turn to the Word of God. And I do want to thank you for your very warm welcome and for the invitation to preach here from this pulpit. I'm very conscious that you have been a church that's been greatly blessed for over 50 years in having the pastor who has just resigned from this pulpit uh, minister to you for all those years. He's not resigned from the work of God. So I trust that you will, I'll urge you to pray for him and for his wife in this new sphere of life that the Lord has brought him into. And I pray that God will continue to bless you with the privilege of having the word of God preached from this pulpit week by week. I bring greetings from my home church in the United Kingdom. They will have been praying for me and for you earlier today. And I bring their greetings and I will take your greetings back to them. Now, if you have a copy of the Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. And I want us to read in the 15th chapter of Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 15. There are some people who regard this as the greatest chapter in the whole of the Bible. And certainly the part of it that we're about to read concerning the prodigal son has made a great impression on the minds of millions of people who read it. It's a chapter that I've preached on a number of times and I make no apologies for doing so again this morning. I was reading recently of a lady who was Russian-speaking in the United Kingdom and she was evangelizing and visited a Russian ship that was in one of our seaports. And there were two very well-built Russian laboring seamen who were ill. And she sent up an arrow prayer to the Lord asking, what shall I read them? And she read this 15th chapter of Luke's gospel to them. And when she looked up, they were both weeping. They had never heard the story before. And she realized in that moment just what a powerful impact the word of God can have on those who have never heard it before. And sadly, some of us can become too familiar with it that we lose that sense of wonder. Well, I hope that we won't lose it this morning. Let's read together from Luke chapter 15. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance." 
Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after the young son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed, to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and, against your, and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandments at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours comes, came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should be merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. Well, what a marvellous passage to read. We'd need a whole series of sermons to preach. But I want to begin this, this morning by mentioning the background 
and the context in which this story is given. It is a background of increasing unbelief and resentment by the scribes and by the Pharisees. And you will notice at the beginning of the chapter that our Lord said, or the the chapter says, the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying this man receives sinners and eats with them. Whether our Lord heard that comment or whether he just knew that that is what they said, or whether he could read their minds and were thinking that, nevertheless, that is what they said. And it was a contemptuous uh, statement on their part. This man receives sinners and eats with them. So they regarded that comment as their strongest denigration of Christ. But in reality... It is the greatest commendation of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the gospel. Now, you will also notice in verse 3 that we are told that our Lord spoke this parable. So the three stories constitute one parable, and they each convey different aspects of spiritual truth. First of all, you have the story of the lost sheep, bleating in distress, conscious that there is nothing wrong but not knowing that there is something wrong but not knowing what was wrong and not knowing how it could find its way back into the sheepfold. And then in the next story you have the lost coin which bears the image and the superscription of the king yet it's failing in the very purpose for which it was minted. It was out of circulation It was good for nothing. It was fulfilling no useful purpose. The coin is inert. It can't bring itself back into circulation. It needs to be brought back by another hand. And in each of those pictures, that which was lost is found. And our Lord says there is this theme of great rejoicing. So that when you come to the third story, you have the first two pictures graphically blended and portrayed in human life. So what our Lord is saying is this. This is what I mean when I speak about a lost sheep that has, lost, that has wandered from the fold. And this is what I mean when I speak about a lost coin failing in the function for which it was brought into existence. This prodigal son is like that lost sheep. This prodigal son is like that lost coin. So it's the three stories together that give us the picture of what true salvation is all about. And it's also true to say that the third story, in that story, there is a comparison between the younger and the older brother. And then you have a contrast between the lostness which each of them experienced. One brother was like the sheep lost in the wilderness. The other brother was like the coin and he was lost in the home. But the whole story in many ways should really be entitled the parable of the older brother. Because that disagreeable son is really the main feature of the parable. He exemplifies the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders. 
those tax gatherers and sinners were notoriously evil. And they had maintained a sinful life. They prided themselves on what they were doing without God. But here, this, these scribes and Pharisees had retained an outward impeccable behavior. They had prided themselves on their punctilious observance of God's requirements. So our Lord is showing how the younger brother had been lost in the far country, but he had come to himself and he'd experienced true and lasting repentance. On the other hand, the older brother, he'd never left home, and yet he had been further away from his father than his brother had been in the far country. Now also keep in mind as we look at this chapter that there are three sons in the story. There is the son who told it. God the Father sent his own son into the far country of this world and sent him to the place called Calvary in order that he might secure our salvation. So you realize that there are depths in the passage that you can never exhaust. So this morning, what I want to focus more closely upon is the one who is universally known as the prodigal son. And whilst it conveys the truths of the gospel from God's point of view, it's also showing us the situation from the human standpoint. We see the sinner going his own way, making a mess of his own life, and then he comes back to the father. Now, they're not two separate things. They're two ways of looking at the same thing. Both things are true in any conversion. The person comes, and yet Christ brings them. Christ brings them, and yet they come. Now, let's look at the story in three main scenes which are described for us here. First of all, you have the departure from home of this young boy in verses 11 to 16. And then you have his resolution to return to his father from verse 17 to verse 19. And then thirdly, you have the welcome of the father in verses 20 to 24. And I'll try to apply some lessons as we go along. Well, look at what it says about the departure from the home at verse 11. He said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. So it's a simple family situation and scene. Two sons in a farming family. The younger of those sons is growing weary of his life within the family circle. He's chafing at the bit. He feels that he's in bondage at home. 
So he wants to go out, he wants to live and to see the world because it was becoming more and more intolerable for him on that remote farm where they lived. And the world outside was big, the days were going by, the years were going by, and he obviously felt that he was missing out on certain things. And it can be a bitter thing sometimes for some people when your heart is young and the world is rich in visions and in voices and you feel that you're missing out on so much that's going on out there. And he thought that everything that he wanted was afar off in the far country and that the appeasing of his restlessness was over the hills and far away. So he wants to be away from this whole atmosphere of a place which has become so disagreeable to him. So it's obvious that his heart was far away from home long before his body left it. He'd wandered away before he set out. And then he comes to his father and he asks for his future inheritance. And he wants it to be given him there and then. Just think about that. Here is a heartless, materialistic boy claiming his share of the inheritance so that he could leave that home and he could live on it. And there doesn't seem to be any effort to understand how his father would feel. There is no asking of the father's advice. It is a selfish request by a thoughtless youth claiming his inheritance just to do what he wants to do. He was totally selfish in this reckless love of life and he sees no reason why he should be denied all the pleasures that he fancied and all the things that he wanted to do. But he was stupid as well as being heartless. He wanted to leave home to find freedom not realizing that that so-called freedom would bring him into even greater bondage. And he would become into bondage with his own personality, with his own circumstances, and to the dictates of his own fair-weather friends who simply will make use of him. So his leaving home will not lead to a life of freedom. It will lead to a life of deterioration and destruction and of great humiliation. And the swiftness in which he leaves home is another indicator of how he was feeling. He's weary of all the restraints, and he wants to be away from this home as soon as he can. He feels cribbed and cabined and confined, and he wants to get away. He was a son in name, but he has long since ceased to be a son in heart. There is no mention of the mother in the story because it is all about the love of God the Father. If it were merely a human story, then there are often, we have to admit it, there are often parental problems whereby those parental problems can create children who become prodigals. Sometimes it's parents who can be totally selfish in the way that they live. That's why many of you need to come and hear Paul Tripp. And sometimes it's simply the love of the children that keeps the home going. 
And sometimes parents can never recognize the sadness that they bring to their own children. And sometimes parents can pride themselves in that they've given their children everything. Well, you may give your children everything and not give them the thing that they want or need. And that is your love. And you're giving them their security that they need. Now, many children grow up in homes like that. But there is no parental defect in this story. So while I've been speaking to parents, let me say something to young people. Because this story has been repeated thousands of times since it was, since it was first told. And if you are here as a young person, and already you're feeling, in a way, as this young man felt, that you're becoming restless at home, and you're longing for the day when you can leave home, I want to urge you to stop and to think about the consequences if you do that in a way that you shouldn't. There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And this young man wants to be away from home because he wants to be independent, and he wants to be independent because essentially he was self-centered. And there were no scope for his energies. Why should he eat his heart out at home when all the attractive voices of the world are waiting for him outside? And youth is short. He's got to have his day. He wants to get out there. He wants to experience life at its deepest depths. So you can see him very early in the morning, unable to face his mother's tears, then going and taking the money, creeping down the yard, out into the street, and away as far as he could, without a thought for the sad, sore hearts at home. And use your sanctified, God-given imagination. See him there, starting off with a light step into the far country. I suppose that the sun had never shone so brightly. The world had never been so magical. Probably intoxicating on that first morning. He's burst the shackles. He's going to be free. He can express himself as he wants to express himself and in the way that he can't express himself at home. And so he's going to enjoy life with a vengeance. Just like some of you do the first day you go to college or you go to university and you're no longer in the family home and you've gained your independence and you're going to really live it up. Well, it is a far country. And he's now in a place where nobody knows him. And so with that sense of anonymity, he feels free to do as he wants. And did you notice the few graphic touches that our Lord uses to convey the kind of life that he engaged in? He simply says he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Now the word prodigal simply means wasteful or extravagant. And so with a characteristic delicacy, our Lord, he doesn't go into the details. 
He leaves it to the older brother to do that. You'll notice in verse 30, the elder brother fills in the details of the picture. And if the elder brother knew what was happening, probably other people knew, and obviously the father knew. So here is a young man who's left home to find freedom, and in that so-called freedom, he indulges in all the carnal desires of the flesh and of the mind. I'm just reading a more modern biography of John Newton, who did the very same thing when he was a young man, set off from home, captain of his own sailing ship, and before he knew it, he was a slave to slaves, and his life was in terrible bondage. So here is this young man, he discovers that the lights are bright, and the wine is sparkling, and the women are beautiful. But before long, he discovers that he is a slave. And it was a sweet slavery for a while, but then the sweetness eventually passed away and the bitterness came in. And thousands of people perhaps looking at him at that period of his life when he was living it up, they might have looked and said, that must be a wonderful way to live. As some of you young people look at your sports stars and all of the rest of them, having money to spend, to indulge yourself in one round of pleasure-seeking and all kinds of carnal indulgence. But keep in your mind that there is a time factor in all of this story. Things didn't take place immediately. And remember that. At any given point in your life, the story is not yet finished. And you may be a young person here this morning and feel that you are enjoying life away from the constraints of home, that you've become independent, you don't want the restrictions of family worship and of your parents and so on. Well, the story of your life, like the story of this young man, is not yet finished. And sin has a blinding power And the work of of, of Satan is a work of deception. And what happened to this young man is that his heart was deluded by Satan. He's been deceived. He's been beguiled into living this new life solely on the basis of his senses. He was deluded into thinking that life with a capital L means throwing off all restraints to the winds. And that is the tragedy about sin, because it can deceive you, it can blind you, and you soon discover that it costs you everything, and it gives you very, very little in return. Now notice the regression which begins with the riotous joy. All that his father had worked for, saved up, he spent on riotous living. And we're all well aware of what kind of living that was, eating, drinking, fornicating, and so on. One round of carnal enjoyments and pleasure-seeking. And young people, remember that there is pleasure in sin. There is plenty pleasure in sin. If it wasn't, we wouldn't commit it. But it doesn't last. 
Moses, you remember, realized that when we are told that he refused to enjoy the pleasures of sin, which were for a season. Jesus said to the woman at the well, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. I feel like putting that over the notice board of discos and all kinds of fun places and so on. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. It will not satisfy you. There'll always be that aching in your heart and in your life. And you can see it all around you. People that live around you, when Friday comes, they're going to have a wonderful weekend, but look at them on Monday. And then it's the same again. Well, for this young man, things regress and they begin to take a turn for the worst. And our Lord, in that solemn way of his, eventually dims the lights and he dulls the music and he takes the sparkle out of the wine. And while this young man had plenty of money, he had plenty of friends. And with those kinds of friends, he wasted the money very quickly. And again, that's true to life. And some people lose a whole fortune in that way. Sin is a very, very costly and expensive thing. There's always a price to pay with sin. It wastes money, it wastes bodies, it wastes souls. It will weaken your will, it will blunt your conscience, and it will harden your heart. And sometimes, as it is in the story of Samson, it can humiliate you and it can degrade you and it can make you a public spectacle. And then we are told that there came a day, said Jesus, when he had spent all. He spent all. He's come to the last fling. He's left with nothing. And then he discovers who his real friends are. No one came to him, and not one of them helped him. And his father at home didn't interfere either except praying for him. Not one of his so-called companions in pleasure had any heart to give to him when he was in desperate need. And then, says our Lord, there arose a famine in that land. Who do you think sent the famine? God's hand is at work in this young man's life. And at this point, he's in a terrible plight. And you require very little imagination to read between the lines. Look at him now begging a farmer to be allowed to feed the pigs, even to eat the pig's will, pleading to do something that the very thing, a Jewish man, it was abominable to him. So he's got into this terrible mess. So that which was a joy at the outset very, very quickly becomes a burden and a bondage. Do you not know that to whom you yield your members to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? And the wages of sin is death. Now, one thing is quite clear about this story, and it's this. The young man never intended that it would end up in a pigsty. And nobody ever does. 
Over 50 years of pastoral experience, I've seen this kind of thing again and again and again. I remember the first man that I met who was a drug addict in the early 60s. And I took him home to give him food and to clothe him and discovered when he's telling his story an absolutely first-class musician who had studied at the Royal College of Music in London and it had all come to this. And what we are being given to us here in pictorial form by our Lord is really the story of the Garden of Eden. It's our Lord's interpretation of the tragic fall and the plight of man. And when you look at it in that way, you'll see how essentially superficial the general understanding of this parable really is. So often the stress is how this prodigal wastes his substance on riotous living. Well, let me just point this out because you may think that's what I've been doing. The form and the expression of this younger son's life is incidental to the main issue of what the story is teaching. It could have been any one of a number number of different expressions of sin. You don't have to go away from home to be a sinner. You don't have to live it up in a permissive society to be a sinner. The more sinister expressions of human sin don't necessarily belong to the farmyard or to the pigsty or to the gutter. Sin is being in a wrong relationship to God. And that is the heart and that is the hurt of this young man's story. And here, Adam and Eve, you remember, in the garden, they were encouraged and tempted to throw off the spirit of dependence that they had upon God. And they listened to the temptation to become independent without God. The incitement to go it alone. And that is the essence of all sin. And, it's this, and that is what makes men and women sinners at heart and in life. So the attitude of rebellion, which is basically self-centered rather than God-centered. And that's what's happening here. That is the essence of sin. That is the heart of the prodigal's problem. That is the heart of the elder son's problem. He asked for nothing. He desired nothing. And he enjoyed nothing. He considered himself to be the model of dutiful sonship. But he was absorbed in his own life. And he couldn't enter into his father's sorrows or his father's joys. And he might well have been the older son. And it might have been his insufferable self-righteousness that was one of the things that drove the younger son away. But the point I'm making is this. They were both in a wrong relationship to their father. And you may be here this morning and you may be a moral, good-living, upright person. You may even be a professing Christian. But you can be a professing Christian and a practicing atheist. And God knows your heart. Are you religious or do you have a relationship with God? Now keep in mind that it is God who has been revealed here as a father. 
And it is the father in the story that suffers most of all. Do you remember the exclamation of God in the Genesis account when Adam had sinned and when Adam then ran and hid himself among the trees of the garden and God came seeking and searching for him and God asked the question, Adam, where are you? How do you think God said that? Adam, where are you? Come and give an account. No, no. I rather think that he said it with the greatest compassion. Adam, where are you? What have you done? What has become of you? And here is our Lord giving that story. The father's heart going out. The son's sufferings were comparatively short in comparison to the sufferings of the father. The father had suffered days, maybe years before, seeing what was happening. The father had watched. The father had waited. The father had prayed again and again and again for his son. So now let's look to the next scene because you now have given here the the young man's resolution and his return. You see that in verses 17 to 21. Do you remember in Genesis 3 that God had said, let us make man in our own image and after our likeness. Now, the image of God in man means two things. On the one hand, it is that which characterizes man as human, as distinct from the rest of creation. Man is a responsible being. He's capable of making responses to God. And that is not in any way changed by his sin. Even when he says no instead of yes to God, he still remains a responsible being. And that aspect of the image of God is never lost, even in the tragedy of the fall. On the other hand, the image of God means that man can never be himself, truly be himself, by himself. He can only be his true self when he is in a right relationship and communion with God. And the tragedy of the human situation is that because of our sinful nature, we all lose our ability to say yes to God. We're no longer free to realize our divine destiny to be ourselves. That's the point of this story. The son is involved in a crisis of identity. He's trying to find himself. That's why he went into the far country. But in doing that, the opposite happened. He lost himself. And then, just as we're at the point of thinking that this young man is such a loathsome person, what happens? Jesus arrests our thinking. Do you not find it interesting how he did this? He used, in verse 17, a single phrase. And that single phrase opens a window. It throws a gleam of light into your mind. And it stops you from being over-judgmental. Look at what it says. But when he came to himself, When he came to himself, 
Does that not ring a bell with you? We use that expression in everyday language. Your mother may say something about your father to the children. He's not himself today. Take no notice, he's not himself. He's not himself. We, we have compassion, and we say, well, he's not himself. And that is the expression that our Lord is using here. And if people do something that is out of character, we say they're not themselves. So here is this young man. He felt that he couldn't be himself in his father's home, and he felt that he could only find his true self in the far country. And the whole irony of what our Lord is saying is that really in the far country, he discovered himself as he truly was. He was estranged from his father. He didn't have the relationship with his father. So that in that far-off country, he wasn't his true self as God intended him to be. And you and I only become our true selves when our eyes are opened and our eyes are fixed upon the person of Christ and our heart is regenerated by the Spirit of Christ and our eyes and our intentions are then totally upon the will of Christ. That's what happens when we are converted. Now, isn't it interesting that when, it was this, when this young man was at his worst, in his own eyes, he was the best in Christ's eyes. If you're a permanent, you know, as I do, sometimes you have to stand back and in modern colloquial language, you have to let them hit the wall. And so the father lets him hit the wall because that was his greatest need. And until he hits the wall, he will not come to himself. And unless he comes to himself, he will not come to the father. And everything about his renewal and restoration stems from that fact that he came to himself. If his money had lasted long enough, he might have lived in the far country until he died. But the hunger came. And on the back of the hunger, his memory revived. And he saw himself as he was, contrasted himself with the man that he had been and with the man that he might have been. And then he begins to see clearly, clearly and he begins to think clearly. Not that his situation had changed. Neither had his home changed. The change is being wrought in him. Now, the story doesn't tell us how he came to himself, but the scriptures tell us that it is a work of the Holy Spirit of God. And as this man is looking at himself in his own mirror, close up against the glass, he sees the prodigal. As he had tragically become... He strayed from home. He strayed a long way from his true self and where he should have been. He saw the husks and the swine and the reality of his condition. And it was a strangely different world from the world that had danced before him before he left home. And he never realized the value of home until he was in this far country. But he knew it then. And he saw it clearly then. He's seeing everything around him and everything within him in a different light. 
He sees what his selfishness has done to him. He sees how self-centered he's been. He recognized not only what had happened to him in the immediate past, but he saw what's going to happen to him if he doesn't come back to his father in the distant future. I perish, he said. I'm perishing. If this goes on and I die, I will go to hell. So he's aware of his physical condition. He's aware of his spiritual condition. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, all of his deceptions are swept away. He sees the truth about himself, his state, his standing, his condition, and his future destiny. And it was this that led his steps back to his father's house. Now, don't overlook the famine. It didn't just happen. God had sent the famine. That's who sent it. Now, notice the two phrases. And when he came to himself, and I will arise and go to my father. He came to himself and he came to the Father. And the coming to yourself is always the precursor of coming to God for salvation. And unless you honestly face up to your condition, really, who you are and what you are, then you will never come to terms with it. Now notice something else in verse 18. There is a confession of sin being made there. Notice that he doesn't soften matters by speaking about his faults and his failings. He doesn't blame other people. I suppose there were other people who helped him on the downward path. He doesn't blame other people. He blames himself. Father, I have sinned. The guilt is mine. I'm ashamed. I am no more worthy. But then you will notice that like David of old, he sees that his sin was also against the Lord. He has injured himself. He's injured his father. But his burden now is that he's injured God. That is what true penitence is all about. It's the broken spirit that God will not despise. Listen to the shorter catechism definition of repentance. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. And that's what's happening to this young man. And then you will notice in verse 20, he arose and he came to his father. And how important that is. Not simply to see yourself as you are, but to do something about it. And the only thing that you can do is come back to God. He didn't wait for somebody else to take him home. He knew that he had to come himself. And he came as he was. He didn't find somewhere where he could go and wash himself and find new clothes. If he had done that, he might never have come. He simply returned to his father, put himself entirely in his father's hands. And so you begin to see the story, which begins with give me, ends with make me. He's been taught by life. He's been disciplined by sorrow. He's been scourged by the lash of his own foolishness. But now in his stubborn rebellion, he's turned towards his father and he comes to his father in sweet submission. 
previously only concerned about himself, what he demanded. But now he's saying, Father, I leave it all to you. You're wise. I've been foolish. I put myself in your hands. Make me whatever you wish to make me in your household. That is what true conversion is all about. It is the submission to the Lordship of Christ. Well, then finally, we come to the scene of the reception by his father. And you can read that in verses 20 to 24. Again, use your sanctified imagination. It would be a very, very long road home. And you can imagine his feelings and his thoughts in his heart and in his mind. It must have been an agony especially in the middle part of the journey. And you can be sure that the devil would be there every step of the way. And the devil would cast fears into his mind concerning his friends at home. What will they think when they see me? What will they say? He would have fears concerning his family. How will they react, especially his older brother? He would obviously wonder whether his father would have him back. Would his father simply look at him and say, well, here he is running back now that he needs me. Would his father say to him, well, you've wasted all my money. Don't expect me to do anything more for you. I'll not let you starve. But do you think you can return the same person that you were that you went away? You forfeited every right to do anything that I, or to have anything that I might give to you. And maybe the devil was there making him think at that very moment that he'll get the worst dressing down from his father that he's ever had. That the father will come to him and maybe the devil would come to him and say, what would you do if you were in your father's position? Oh, says the devil, there's no hope for you in God. Isn't it interesting how the devil works? Before you and I commit sin, And when we're tempted, like Eve was tempted in the Garden of Eden, the devil makes light of it. It's nothing. What are you worrying about? Everybody does it. There's nothing important about it. But once you've committed sin, and you want to come back to God, the devil tells you, oh, how bad that is. You'll never get forgiveness for that. That is the way the devil works. Don't listen to him. He is the father of lies. And despite all of the fears and the assaults upon him, the boy came. And he didn't know that his father had been watching and waiting all the time that he'd been away. But the father, when he was in the far country, the father never went out to find him. I find that an interesting thing. And those of you who are parents, you know what I'm speaking about. There are times when you have to stand back and you have to watch and you have to wait. And yes, you'll always be a parent to your children while they and you are alive. But there are times when you have to stand back. It's called tough love. But sometimes you have to do it. And that can be very tough on the prodigal. 
But although he didn't see his father, his father saw him. And I imagine there was never a a morning when the father awoke when he didn't think about his boy. Hoping, wishing, longing to see him. How many times his heart would leap when he saw somebody on the road, only to be disappointed when it was a stranger. Those of you who are parents with prodigal children, never ever give up praying for your children. While they have praying parents, they will never find it easy. But never give up praying for your children. I have known children be converted at the very graveside of their parents. So never give up. Keep praying for them. God answers prayer. And it may seem to you that the heavens are as brass and nothing is happening. But God is working. And keep on praying. And this father knew everything that was going on in the far country. And so when he sees him coming, how did the father think? What a change in him. He's lost so much weight. He's skin and bones. This is, this is not the young man that left my home. And his whole being went out to him. And our Lord says that he ran as fast as he could to meet him. Something that oriental men very rarely do. He ran. You can imagine the servants looking at him, running out of the house, watching him, going down the yard, maybe going over a gap in the hedge, running to find what's happened to the master of the house. Running out like this. He goes the quickest way that he can. And we are told that they met a great way off from the house. And you can imagine the feelings and the emotions. And in that private meeting, the son makes his confession And when the father realizes it's genuine repentance, there is no need to wonder whether his father will have him back. In one moment, in that very moment, he found everything that he'd been looking for in the far country. And notice what our Lord says in verse 10. There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over sinners that repent. Such is the value of one sinner So this whole story is not so much a statement about the doctrine of the atonement. It is a revelation of the heart and of the love of Almighty God. And that's the thrill and the rejoicing that when one sinner comes back home, God himself rejoices. The angels in heaven rejoice. Now let me crave your patience and indulgence for just a few minutes more. I want to share with you a poem that I love. Some of you may have heard it before by a man named I.Y. Ewan. He belonged to the Brethren Fellowship. And he puts it in a similar story about a prodigal daughter. It's entitled The Sexton. The Sexton is an old English word for a gravedigger. Any of you that know poetry and you know Gray's Elegy in a country churchyard, It's based on that kind of uh, poem. And the sexton is the graveyard. So it's a a sexton, a gravedigger, who is saying this. In yon secluded nook beside the wall, where long the pine boughs droop, the shadows fall, where wild the roses bloom a riot red, where pensively the lily bows its head, 
Apart from those supposed as well behaved, the one sweet word forgiven is engraved upon a lowly stone. A babe forlorn who lost her mother soon as she was born. She grew up in her father's tender care, tenfold beloved, yea, and tenfold fair. Upon the dawn of noble womanhood, ignoble things she never understood until too late, by cultured friends misled. She, panic-stricken from her father, fled. He searched the heedless city day and night until he found her in the pale moonlight beside the horrid waters waiting near, all full of dark despair and chilling fear. He hushed the pent-up storm that raged within and never once made mention of her sin, but spoke of little things that gave her cause to feel how indispensable she was, the little things that memory retains, the little threads that hold like cable chains. He stroked her hair and her trembling form caressed until she sobbed her heart out on his breast and told her piteous tale. With cruel wile the wicked watched, the guileless to beguile. He took her home, he brought the book and read of him who had not where to lay his head, who sought the outcast, who the broken blessed, and spoke forgiveness to the self-confessed, who ministered God's mercy as he passed, to die for the ungodly at the last. With patience thus he sought her heart to win, and never once made mention of her sin. Love had its way, with superhuman art it wrote the word forgiven on her heart. Her doubtful hour arrived. With anguish torn, the broken spirit sank at break of morn to love in sovereignty upon the throne. The suffering father bowed his head alone. The people flocked their last respects to pay. The cold, self-righteous sternly stayed away. A soft wind filled the wintry air with sighs. A vivid rainbow spanned the weeping skies. Glory in tears. The mourners gathered round. I saw a snowdrop trampled to the ground. The book was opened and the word was read. They let her down, deep down among the dead. He dropped the cord, the hollow sound I hear, then raised his rugged face without a tear and turned him home to be alone, to see and, and nurse her nameless infant on his knee. There good men mourned and strong men stood and wept and others from the place in silence crept by conscience scourged. The voice I used to hear lives like a note of music in my ear in memory's shrine. I love those ways so wise, the happy laughter in those honest eyes so full of eloquence. From pole to pole, that corner is sacred to my soul. It was a long, long time ago, they say. Tonight, it seems to me, but yesterday. And part of the wonder of salvation is coming home. Finding forgiveness, finding acceptance, restoration, joy, belonging. It is emotional. The father fell on his neck and kissed him. And I think the original word means that he showered him with kisses. You know the kind of thing that you do if you go to the seaside and you're a parent and you think the little toddler has got lost? And you're panic-stricken. You're looking for the child. Could be drowned. And then the child is found. And you grab the child and you kiss them. And you kiss them. And you kiss them again. And here is this father looking at his boy, kissing him, kissing him again, standing back, looking at him, going over, kissing him again, sitting him down, looking at him, and kissing him. He showered him with kissing. 
And those kisses were the seal to that boy. You are forgiven. He wouldn't have kissed him if he hadn't forgiven him. You're forgiven. Everything. New conditions. And he never once made mention of his sin. That is forgiveness. That's what God can do for you. If you're in the far country. Or if you're a respectable person. A professing Christian and a practicing atheist. God can receive you. You're to come to him. Trust in him. And he will never fail you. He will never let you down. There will be no conditions. All your sins will be forgiven. I haven't time to go into the robe and the ring. I can't go into that. But simply know that that boy was restored fully by his father. Go back to the beginning of the story. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Well, thank God that he does. Thank God that he does. And he is willing to receive you and to eat with you if you come to him and put your trust in him before it's too late. Let us bow together in prayer. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we bow before you and we bless you for who you are. A heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God, for our Lord Jesus Christ, and for his wonderful way of speaking to sinners. And we thank you for this story, whether it's true or not. And we ask that you will bless it to each one of our hearts, parents who are sorrowing over wayward children. Encourage us, we pray, to have faith that they can come, that they can come back and that they can be saved. And for those who perhaps young people on the verge of going out into the world, guard them from being deceived. Help them to know that their true satisfaction and joy and happiness is to be found in their relationship with you. That they don't have to live it up a wild life to be a sinner. Oh Lord, bless your word to all of our hearts and may the peace of God which passes all understanding flow our hearts and minds this day and all our days. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.